Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are continuing to work our way through the Gospels. This is Gospels Part 80. Last week we talked about after Jesus healed this demon-possessed man who was uh, blind and mute and the irrationality of the Pharisees by saying that it was by Beelzebul that he had casted it out and Jesus refuting that so eloquently to say, like, why would I be a part of Beelzebul if I'm casting out demons who are under his authority? Like, it has to be because, you know, the Spirit of God is among you that is casting out these demons, and that means that the kingdom has actually come upon you. Um, And then he went into another illustration about a strong man's house, about how you need to, like, bind the strong man first before plundering his house. Um, And then we ended the episode with a very controversial verse, at least in the evangelical circle, about what the sin of the blasphemy of against the Holy Spirit actually is, and that it's oh way more specific than the church gives it credit for, that it's you knowing and recognizing the power and the works of God, and yet you are actively, uh, intentionally choosing to refute that even though in your heart and your convictions and your motives you know that what god is doing is present among you and that's what the he that's what jesus was saying that the pharisees were doing in this instance yeah yeah i'm man i'm glad you reminded me of all that now what we're about to read makes some sense (laughs) (laughs) so all right so yeah that's really good and this thing about jesus you know saying hey man you guys in a sense he's calling them hypocrites right so he's going to continue with that, uh, kind of busting their chops a little bit. So, hey, like a soap opera, let's get into it. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 to 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Yowza. That's pretty tough right there. Yeah, what a way to start off. (laughs) Yeah, welcome to the podcast. So, okay, uh, so this good tree, good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit thing. Uh, As I mentioned, okay, we're returning to this idea of their hypocrisy in saying that Jesus was casting out demons by Beelzebul when, as Jesus pointed out, we know their sons were busy casting out demons too, 
and we thought that maybe their sons would be their disciples. And if their their sons were doing it, well, then presumably they were doing it by God. And it's like, okay, that's just dumb. So Jesus's challenge is, hey, how about how about you just be consistent? Okay, so it's I. What's a good word? It's axiomatic that a good tree bears good fruit and that a bad tree bears bad fruit. And so Jesus is just saying, how about you guys just call them like you see them? How can you look at me and say it's it's, uh, Beelzebul and look at them and say that it's God? You're just being dumb. So if everything Jesus did, and that would be, we could call that his fruit, if everything he did was good, well, how how can they call him, you know, the tree, how can they call him bad? So it's just, I don't know, he's just, it's just plain and simple logic, and he's getting them good. But then, then he does actually seem to get a little personal here, Samuel, a little bit specific. (laughs) And you know what? We like to look at Jesus as just this wonderful, loving guy, and he was, but he wasn't afraid to speak the truth to people about who they are, what they're doing. So he tells them, you guys, you are the bad trees with the bad fruit. The words that are coming out of you are evil, and that's bad fruit. And those words are coming from your very heart, and that kind of makes them the bad tree. And remember, So often, when we're reading in our Bibles, when it's talking about the heart, it's not the way we think of it today in America. It's more like the mind, the will, the intellect. That's the heart of a man. And then it's almost like he wonders if they are even capable of speaking good. And (laughs) he equates them with the offspring of a venomous snake. (laughs) Nice. Which... What does that remind you of, Samuel? I mean, anybody who gets referenced to snake biblically, probably going back to Genesis 3 with the serpent in the garden. Right, right. Yeah, you got the serpent in the garden. We also have, I don't know if you remember John the Baptist, he uh, called him a brood of vipers. Oh, yeah. Remember that a little bit? So that, you know, uh, another one. But yeah, they're, they are the offspring of a venomous snake. They're vicious and treacherous to their very core. And in case any of you had that thought run through your head, man, I'm glad I'm not them. <laughs> Careful. <laughs> we, we, I mean, I totally get the thought, but you know, we need to, boy, we need to be very self-aware. The reason they're speaking and acting the way that they are, the reason they've slandered even the Holy Spirit is because their hearts are filled with this junk. And this is kind of a good image. They are so filled with this garbage that it's overflowing, meaning it's coming right out of their mouths. And here's the thing, you know, we haven't talked about this a lot in this podcast. We focus a lot on the faithfulness and loyalty in our deeds. Now, we've said some things, But there's a a Jewish phrase, and I've heard it pronounced like 50 different ways. And so I'm just going to go with Lashon Hara. Could be right, could be wrong, I don't know. 
but it's it's this idea of watching your speech, being careful with the things that come out of your mouth. And it is, it's just a huge part of Jewish uh, morality and character and, and all of this. So here, Jesus is talking about it. That, that stuff is coming out of your mouths, and it's going to get worse. You'll you'll see. Again, I've said it. Jesus, he's laying out simple logic. The good person, I mean, he does it some more. This, you've got this good person, and he has a figurative treasure chest of good. And from that, they bring forth good. So that's like the good tree, the good fruit. And and what is it that's in this treasure chest of good that's coming out, Samuel? What What's the phrase that we would always use? Like um, a three, like, threefold thing? Good deeds? Yeah, yeah. And And I always call it thought and word and deed. Okay. And so that good tree, the good fruit, that's where you see it. It's in, it's, it's in your thoughts, it's in your words, and it's in your deeds. Now, the bad person, it's like he's got this figurative treasure chest of evil. And so they bring forth from that. And that's the image of a bad tree with the bad fruit. But this also, where is this? It's in their thought and their word and their deed, their very heart. And now I, I would just like to point out so often in Christianity, you hear this this reference to Christians as, I mean, we're just awful. Oh, what a worm am I? And my my righteousness is filthy rags. And I mean, they say all these things, and it makes it sound like humans are completely and totally incapable of doing anything good. And we here just don't believe that's true. God created man good. Now, for sure, there was the fall in the garden, and we all, all of us have sinned, and and we choose bad things and all that. But the point is, we live as humans with both a good inclination and an evil inclination. That's another sort of Jewish way of viewing humanity, our, our way of dealing with the world around us, living in it. And so notice, Jesus is literally saying that there is a good person. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and there is the evil person. The evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. I think that that is just Jesus's way of talking about the good inclination and the evil inclination and the fact that humanity has the potential for both. And I just think that's so important to point out. And now, what else do we got? Okay, so we here again on the podcast, we've repeatedly stated how important it is to just to know you're going to be judged by your deeds. And this is, you know, usually in opposition to the idea that you're going to be judged by whether you believe or not. That's, I mean, there there is a connection there, obviously, but but anyway, you're judged by your deeds. And, and this is all still true, but and we just used it, Samuel, we've used that phrase many times, that thought, word, and deed, that lingo. This is a great example of how important our words are as disciples. And in some sense, I guess, you know, shame on us here on the podcast for not saying that often enough, but our very words, all of them, they will be accounted for and judged. Now, how scary is that thought? 
How often do we just talk and we don't even really think about what we're saying? And these careless words, whether they are idle or whether they are lazy or whether they are useless or, I mean, right, we could just plug in so many words there. But they are the ones, the careless words are the ones we need to avoid. And I have no idea why I get this little image in my head. If you picture like a beautiful green pasture, or maybe it's just, you know, like a yard or wherever, some beautiful green. And then imagine there's this big old jagged rock that's kind of poking up out of that pasture. Those are the careless words, the idle, lazy, useless, evil words. Those are the ones that we need to avoid. And so... I mean, man, this is such a great reminder for life. We need to speak with intention to bring comfort, to bring encouragement, and, you know, even to bring rebuke. And that doesn't have to be hurtful. That doesn't have to break a person. Anything that leads to good. And we just need to be intentional with that. And so uh, it talks about Jesus. Man, listen to what he says. By your words, you will be justified and or, well, I shouldn't say and or, or condemned. Your words. Wow. Now, we know on one hand, our justification, our salvation, it's only possible because of Jesus's faith and faithfulness. But again, we have another example of how we have a role. There is the 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 our part, the, our faith and faithfulness. And as disciples... I'm going to go back to that phrase again. Every thought, every word, and every deed must be conformed to our master, our teacher, Jesus. That, I mean, just to kind of like jump to the end of the story, that's how we get into the book of life. Jesus did his part. Anything that we do or say or whatever, it's not like it is effective to save us. we We don't have that. Jesus did that. But our thoughts, our words, our deeds, all of these things, it's like they, they are an identifying mark. There's something that, that uh, God, Jesus, whatever, can point to and go, yep, you're a sheep, not a goat. You are in the book of life, not in the book of death, or, you know, whatever. So it's just, it's, it's so important that you see it. We have a role. Yeah, that's good and convicting. Um... I'm getting the words of David put in my mind right now in Psalms. Um, I think it's chapter 19, verse 14, where he says, May the uh, words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O God, my Redeemer. Um, And that plays into that Lashon Hurrah that you mentioned earlier. Um, But I do want to, I think I understand you for the most part, but if I'm looking at verse 37 itself it's it's hard for me to interpret that any other way than like what you say is going like in your life in a general overall sense is going to show whether you are justified or be condemned and i know you said just recently that like it's only because of jesus's faith and faithfulness that we receive justification and salvation but is this more like our words show where our heart and our faith are at, um, and it, like what you said, it's just a, like a litmus test to show 
where our identity stands more so than those words itself being uh, what our justification is being staked on. And then before I let you respond, like I'm also getting this picture in my head of like swirling, like it's not black and white. Like what about people who like just their life, it they struggle with words and speaking things. Like it's a temptation for them to speak ill of people or not build yeah. people up and what like, what about those who are following jesus and trying to be a, a disciple but that that's just something that they are are prone to like where do they fit in with all of that yeah yeah and you know what i'm gonna I maybe go backwards we we always have to remember that we don't have the ability and we don't have the authority the position whatever to judge anyone's final destiny that's all in god's hands this is a really, really good thing because God sees the heart. And I think we've talked about this some in the podcast before. Every, everybody's different. And where, I mean, I'm just going to use an example. For me, alcohol, there is no temptation there. I just couldn't care less. I, I don't have anything against it, for it, whatever. I just don't care about it. So, Am I going, you know, is God going to look at me, look at me and go, oh, Paul, you're so awesome because you never got drunk? Well, no. I mean, that didn't cost me anything. That was easy because I don't care. But for the guy that struggles with it, we, I think we have to leave room. This, this whole idea of God sees the heart, sees the inner man. He sees and knows and understands that guy's struggle. He may, even though we might look from the outside and go, dude, I don't know, that dude, he just can't seem to win over that one issue. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, he has his times when he does really well, but every once in a while, boy, that alcohol comes back and bites him in the butt, you know. Well, he may actually get way more credit for his loyalty and faithfulness and effort in God's eyes because God knows that guy inside and out. He knows what he's dealing with. And it's really a struggle. And the guy, he might actually be doing really well in God's eyes compared to the way we would see it and judge it. Now, I'm making up this example and you can plug in anything you want there. Like Samuel, you were talking about words. Maybe somebody struggles with words or whatever. So it's important to know, look, we have to let God be the judge. We have to let him because he is more merciful than we could ever be. He's also more just and more righteous and all that. That's true, but he sees through it all and and can make the right kind of judgment. And that should never be an excuse for any of us. None of us can go, well, God knows what I'm dealing with. No, that that's that's wrong. You need to give it everything you've got. And at the same time, knowing that when you fail, you can get right back up and start again, and God's not going to just toss you aside. It can't be an excuse for you, but it also shouldn't be any sort of condemnation to you when you fail. So that that is an interesting thing. So I want to get that out while I was thinking about it. Now back to and this is always so difficult to say, and I, I feel like I'm just going to say the same things again, so if I'm not really answering your question, Samuel, let me know. But what this boils down to is this idea of what is actually 
effective? What can actually bring about a result? Okay. So here I am. I'm just a regular guy. I have a life that I've lived and, you know, skin, skin, sin scattered throughout it. <laughs> I mean, technically there is skin scattered. That's right. Dust. I got a little skin in the game, right? <clears throat> no. So there's sin scattered all throughout my life. Okay. Samuel, is there anything? It, it, let's just pretend for a moment. From this moment forward, I live an absolutely perfectly righteous life. Let's just say I do it. Or even you at your age, you're much younger than me. Like what, 80 years or something? I don't know. So much younger. But even if you at this moment, and let's say you live to be 100, you lived a perfectly righteous life. Are either one of us going to qualify for overcoming death? wiping out sin, not only for ourselves or for others. Are, are, are we going to do any of that? No. We know this. We, can, we can't do this. So our righteousness is not effective in the same way that Jesus's was. His righteousness, his suffering, completely undeserved. His death, completely undeserved. He garnered so much merit before the Father, because of his suffering and death, undeserved, that he's got all this merit with God. And that merit overcomes, it, it, first of all, it earned him resurrection. He, he, he uh, overcame death. And all of that merit of his, that grace of God, it's applying to us where we fall short. That's how we are able to receive in effect, his righteousness, that kind of stuff. So his was effective. Ours doesn't do that. And so we're left with, well, then why are we doing it? Well, number one, it is a reasonable response to what God has done for us. Number two, our very joy and happiness and fulfillment and purpose and all of that is bound up in God's instructions if we look at them as rules, we're missing the point. If we look at them as instructions from a loving God, like the key to our actual happiness, well, then why wouldn't we? But also, as I said before, there's kind of like this, it's like an identifying marker. It's like if the world was filled with people and you know you had to determine which of those people were sheep and which of them were goats, well, another way to look at it is which of, which of them are branded? Which of them have, you know, Jesus's name branded into their bicep or, you know, something like that? It's an identifier. It doesn't save us, but it does separate and identify us as belonging to him. Am I even getting at the point? Am I helping at all? What's, what's, what are we going here, Samuel? I think so. It's something I continue to need to let those words that you said soak in and let me wrestle with them. But yeah, it, that, I think what you said is helpful and gets, gets me re-centered with this passage. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult concept, most especially because I think we all were sort of raised up on that foundation of 
hey, if you just believe, your sins are forgiven and you're going to heaven. It's a great story, but it it misses a whole bunch of the actual real story. And it's hard to overcome that. But all right. So shall we move on? Let's. All right. Let's see what we got. Matthew chapter. Okay. So actually, this is covering both Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 42, and Luke chapter 11, verses 29 to 32. But we're going to go ahead and read from Matthew. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Okay, this is good stuff here, Samuel. Mm -hmm. You feeling it? Oh, yeah, Yeah? I like this. Okay. Now, in some sense, it's kind of hard to tell. It could be that this is just really bad timing on these guys' part, or maybe it's a continuation continuation of the story. Here's what we don't know. When it says some scribes and Pharisees, you know, they're coming to request this sign, are, are, are we saying that these are the same guys that Jesus just called a brood of vipers? And they're just, you know, like continuing in their goofiness and, you know, okay, uh, I'm ignoring what you just said. Why don't you show us a sign? Or because it says, you know, some scribes and Pharisees, are we supposed to understand this as, no, 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 no. This is now a new group. And and I mean, let's just give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they want very much to believe, uh, but they're, you know, they they, they don't know. They, they want something. And so they're requesting a sign. You know, give us a little something more. Push us over the edge or over the top or whatever. It's really difficult to know, and I've heard arguments on both sides. I kind of lean toward the second one. I think this is maybe a different group because Jesus does seem to lighten up a little bit. He doesn't seem to be quite so harsh with them. And isn't them using the the phrase teacher a very respectful and almost endearing type of address to a person, like the ones that he called a brood of vipers? It, it doesn't yeah. make sense for them to call him, you know, rabbi, teacher. Yeah, uh, th- great this, point. seems to be another group, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, it really does. So, yeah, so that's what we're going to go with. We're saying, okay, so these are some new guys, and uh, they they just want to see a sign. Now, Jesus, I wouldn't say that he's, like, super patient or nice or anything, but, you know, he's not really mean or harsh either. For sure, he doesn't get personal. He kind of backs off and he begins to speak about the entire generation. But 
you know, he calls this entire generation evil and adulterous. So again, not super nice, but it kind of reminds me, and and I, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of hoping either Jesus or the writer of the gospel, they, they really meant us to see this, it reminds us, it should remind us of Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5. Why don't you read that, Samuel? They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Yeah. So God, in this verse, they were speaking of Israel. And, and, and the idea was that they, they were going to prove to be, and, and in some sense they had proven to be, and they were going to prove to be just messed up, crooked, twisted, blemished. And, and you know, they were supposed to be his own. And so this is just, I, I don't know what else to call it. It's like a continuation of that, but Jesus is bringing it home and saying, look, you guys right here, right now, this generation, you're just like what it was talking about back in Deuteronomy. But interestingly, he also, at least kind of, sort of, grants their request for a sign. Now, he does this in two different ways. It's not direct. Uh, in the first way, he's saying, look, I'm not going to do a sign for you right here and right now, but you can look back to Jonah and his story, and in that, you will find understanding. And then a second way, and I don't know, I guess this is giving them something to look forward to. So the story of Jonah, they were looking back, and this is a way of looking forward, and there is a sign to come that will in some way allude back to Jonah. Now, we might look at this and it seems pretty obvious. Oh yeah, that's Jesus's death and resurrection, uh, right? That That's, you know, it spent some time in the earth. I mean, it talks about, but just as a point, uh, some people argue that, well, not all witnessed his resurrected self. And so maybe that isn't the great, the greatest sign in the future. And okay, I kind of get that. And so what they offer as an alternative is the destruction of the temple. And, you know, you could take your pick and maybe it means something else. But the point is we see Jesus in, in a way, it's like he's showing yet another mercy. He's claiming, I'm not going to give you a sign, twisted and evil generation, whatever. (laughs) And at the same time, you know, he kind of does. He points him to Jonah and lets him know, hey, there's something coming. It's going to relate to Jonah. You're going to see it. It's it's a chance for them to see the truth before it's too late. And I just, I love it when you see those hidden little mercies in there. But anyway, back to the actual story, uh, talking about Jonah. So Jonah, he spends three days in the belly, three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. Now, this would represent death and and the grave for Jonah. You know, we imagine him alive inside this fish, but I'm just saying it represents death in the grave. Jesus, he was going to actually die, and he was going to be in the grave. And and that phrase, the heart of the earth, you know how so many of us today, when we think about heaven, you know, for, for whatever reason, we think about up, 
somehow heaven is up, whatever that means, and and somehow we think of hell and we go, oh well, hell is down, right? <laughs> so mm-hmm. so we understand. So when Jesus says in the heart of the earth, it's just another way of saying he's going to be in the grave. Uh, and so this three days and three nights thing, though, it is so specific. And it actually becomes really problematic. And there are there are people, they they get upset. They're bothered by this three days and three nights thing. And the question is, well, why? Why are they so upset? Well, here's the thing. Jesus was buried on a Friday, just before sunset. And then he's resurrected, kind of like the traditional way of understanding the story. He's resurrected at or just before sunrise on Sunday. Let's say at sunrise, because that buys us a little more time. So here's the problem. There are a lot of different ways to, to count time. And even with some of the most liberal Jewish reckoning, you know, the idea that a day starts at sunset and all that kind of stuff, the best you could possibly do is to come up with three days and two nights. <laughs> but the text says three days and three nights. So what the heck's going on there? So here's the thing. It, this is, it's one of those that you just can't know because you're not there. We're not a part of the culture. It's just a common idiom. It was super common for Israel and maybe even other cultures, but definitely Jews in Israel at this time to reference even the smallest part of a day as the whole day. So if any part of Friday was touched, well, you just call that a whole day. Saturday, any part of Sunday was touched, you call that a whole day. So it it touches three days and therefore it, it gets reckoned as three full days. So days and nights, three days and three nights. Now, I get it. For many of us today, we're going to hear that. And we're going to go, you know, that that's not really very compelling for me. And I get it because it's foreign. But here's something to think about. Jews across the last couple of thousand years have looked for many, many different ways to point to Jesus, the gospel stories, all this kind of stuff. They're trying to find ways to prove Jesus can't be Messiah. That can't be real. None of this is real. You guys are making all this up. Well, here's the thing. What you will not find is any argument from them that this three days and three day and three nights is a problem. It doesn't bother them because it already fit with the way that they were thinking, that kind of approach. They don't care about it. Now, if they could use this as some sort of claim, ah, see, your your scriptures are messed up. They're they're not true. This didn't happen. Well, they would claim, you know, he can't be Messiah. Your scriptures are lies, but they don't. This isn't one of the things that they pick on. And so I think in that you can see that the way Jewish culture uh, thinking was going to approach this, they don't mind this at all because it's just, yeah, it's just an idiomatic thing. Cross three days, we'll call it three full days, whatever, we don't care. So anyway, I had to address it because people get upset about it. So uh, I guess all that is just to say that's one way that we could make some sense of the connection uh, back to Jonah, but there's still a textual kind of problem. 
this line in Matthew's gospel where it talks about the three days and three nights, <laughs> after I went and spent all that time talking about that, it may not even be in the original text. We, ha- we literally have scribal notes that suggest that this wasn't supposed to be there. I mean, it, and it really could be. This line, it isn't even supposed to be in our text at all, so it shouldn't be causing any trouble. This is going to make us kind of look elsewhere for uh, different or better or other ways of interpreting the Jesus and Jonah connection. Now, uh, it would be much more likely that this whole connection that we're talking about, we don't have to focus so much on the three days and three nights and the belly of the fish and all that. The, The important connection, and I'm sure you know this is where we're headed, it's about the call to repentance. It's not... Jonah's time in the belly, it's Jonah's message and Nineveh's repentance. So here again, we're seeing that we've got this generation of Nineveh, they're being held up like an example for the current generation or against the current generation. They were called to repentance, Nineveh answered, but this generation of Israel doesn't. Nineveh gets spared, but the problem is Israel won't be. And we're going to see Israel's destruction played out in about 40 years when, you know, at the same time as the destruction of the temple. Now, it doesn't mean that all of Israel, like, is literally completely destroyed, but we see the destruction of Israel as a nation with a home and all that, the temple, uh, in about 40 years. So Nineveh is held up as an example. Which is crazy, because Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, one of Israel's worst enemies. People of Nineveh, people of Nineveh were Assyrians, one of God's worst enemies. Jonah goes there, and honestly, he just doesn't do more than mumble. Okay, maybe that's a slight exaggeration. But all he really says is, hey, repent, or, you know, God's going to get you for all of this. Okay, maybe that's a paraphrase. But he, it was weak as far as prophets go. Yeah, he was not a great prophet. Oh, weak sauce. It was terrible. But they, Assyria, Nineveh, right? They respond wholeheartedly, whole nation, repentance, sackcloth, ashes, even the livestock. Jesus is pointing to this in direct contrast to the people in Israel, most especially the leadership in Israel. They are supposed to be a friend of God a son of God, and yet the response to the physical incarnation of the word of God, the incarnation of his Torah, yeah, their response, you know, it's muted at best, relatively little repentance, you know, uh, given the whole of the nation, and, and yet, and Jesus says it twice, something far greater than Jonah was there. It was Messiah. The incarnation, right there in their midst. And then he adds on the bit about the, the, the queen of the south. This is the queen of Sheba, just kind of making the same kind of point. The inference here is that she too, she, she's, uh, she's not on God's team. She's not a part of Israel in any way. She's outside and probably even little familiarity or awareness of Israel and Israel's God. But Solomon he come, he becomes kind of famous, I guess. His fame spreads, and so she hears about him, and she is quick to appreciate the wisdom of Solomon. She understood this great thing that was in her time. She traveled 
great distance to come and see it, hear it, be in its presence. She gave magnificent gifts as acknowledgement and honor. She does all this stuff. And even her response to God's wisdom outshines what most of Israel, especially the leadership, is doing, how they're responding to this incarnation of God's wisdom in their midst. And again, he says it, something far greater than Solomon was there in their midst. So this is good weighty stuff. I love it. Yeah, I have been just salivating over here while you've been going through this to (laughs) respond and reply. Um, You should interrupt more. I I don't want to mess up your flow, man. You've got such a good flow going in the middle. I just don't want to interrupt that, you know? Yeah. Um, (laughs) I think all of your points uh, and connections to Jesus' death and resurrection are awesome, and um, I think that there is some intentionality potentially there for Jesus, including this three days and three nights um, with Jonah, like kind of posthumously that we can look back at and connect after his death or resurrection. But I want to bring up and focus on the, the the middle part that you mentioned about that this this sign is more a call to repentance for the nation of Israel itself and why mm-hmm. I'm suggesting that is let's let's try to think back to the context um, that Jesus who he's talking to here in the first century and just as a note I think I'm getting this teaching from either um, Marty Solomon or it might be some first fruits of Zion as well. I can't remember, but regardless, um, when Jesus says uh, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, our evangelical minds go, "Oh yeah, he's talking about his death and, re- and resurrection." But for the listeners there in the first century, would they have any idea that he was mentioning about his death and resurrection? Like. That's anachronistic. It's backwards because, right. I mean, they had all kinds of allusions to, like, who Messiah was going to be and what he was going to do on earth. But, like, the big reveal is that, you know, God came as a man and that he died and that he rose. And, like, all that was, like, kind of hidden until the very end. So, and for my understanding and interpretation, that was a big light bulb for me that's like, no, like, I am, I am assuming interpretation in here that doesn't belong um and then it's much more like israel here in the first century fits so well with like jonah's interactions and response in that book because he jonah himself was so bitter from the nation's captivity due to babylon that he was so unwilling uh, and did not desire to go to Nineveh whenever God called him uh, because of everything that has happened to him as a people group. In the same way, like in Jesus' day here, the people are responding very similarly to those outside of Israel. And I mean, there's even strife within their own people group as well. So I don't know if that makes sense to, to people or if the way that I said it adds anything to what you said, Paul. But I just wanted to bring that up that please don't make this part primarily about you know his death and resurrection because we hadn't even got to that part in the story yet yeah that's really good it, just as a reminder of how we read our text 
make sure that we remember we're 2,000 years in the future, and it may have looked and sounded different to them. It's super important. And it's really good, Samuel. And it, I think what you're doing is highlighting this idea where, remember, we said, well, Jesus, he doesn't really give them a sign, but he, he sort of helps them look backward, and he helps them look forward. And, and so, uh, in a way, you're, you're really speaking to that, the idea that, yeah, and, and sometime in their future, they may actually be able to remember this moment and, and look back, and maybe they could understand the three days and three nights and that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a, it's a, I don't know, that was just some good stuff in there. Anything else? I, I don't think so, no. All right. There's more goodness coming. Let's go ahead. You know what? I think, I think we can at least do this next little part and then, I don't know, we'll see where we're at. Uh, so where we're, we're uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 to 45, and this is also Luke chapter 11, verses 24 to 26. And, uh, you know, you guessed it. I'm in the groove with Matthew, so we're going to keep going. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this generation. Whoa, what is that trying to say? (laughs) What? Fills out a left field. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, on uh, so it's like an interesting parable, you know, you just hear it and you're like, "Ooh, I don't know. I don't know what that's talking about, but that sounds interesting." And it appears in kind of an interesting place. We we need to try to understand what this parable is saying in the context. And and so we've got the context like here in Matthew, let's say, and in Luke. But then we've also got the context of this generation and and the fact that this generation has turned out to be a complete failure in a sense right they're adulterous they're evil that kind of thing and so that's the we need to try to try to interpret within that so what do we got here we got the removal of the unclean spirit now you might think of this uh you you could uh say that it represents repentance especially if we're talking about the generation and, you know, it could even be exorcism, you know, the idea of, of getting some of the evil out that is uh, affecting, oppressing people, whatever. Uh, the, you could think of these things as actual or symbolic or both. So you've got this removal of the unclean spirit, and then you have the, the person. And I think that we should, be, we should be understanding the person as being the generation of Israel. And so when we say the house is in order, then we have to look at, well, you know, this would be the generation actually becoming faithful and loyal and obedient. And, and, you know, you might add the generation following Torah, and I don't mean like in the for the sake of rules sense, but in the, the, the true goal of the Torah, 
mercy, justice, uh, charity, etc. But then something is missing. And I'm actually going to relate this back to something we read a little earlier. So you got this house, you got this generation, but it's as if there is no real defense. See, when, when, the, when the house is left alone, the house or the person or the generation, okay, it's in pretty good shape, or so it would seem. But if an enemy comes, it proves to be completely vulnerable, completely undefended. In fact, it's possible, and we're going to call it like in the story, this upcoming possession, and and we could look at that as uncleanness or sin or whatever, all of that, right? It's possible, and in, in the story, it's, it actually is likely, that it, the the upcoming possession is far worse than the first. So, with regard to Torah, it's, it's got to be that when we talk about the house being in order, it can't be that they're only following the letter of the law, the surface meaning of the Torah, because that's exactly what they're doing today. It's not that there's anything inherently bad. Boy, how am I, I, I going to say this? To, to actually do what you see the Bible saying it is good to do, to actually follow Torah, to, to, okay, there's nothing bad about that. I mean, that, that's a good thing. But the, the defense that you need against falling away from God or the true, true faithfulness, true loyalty, it comes in the true goal, the true end of Torah, that justice and mercy stuff. See, without those things, a person remains at risk. It can't be just a list of rules. It's got to be instructions for living you know, sort of within an entirely new worldview. And so Jesus is claiming because this current generation, most of them are not buying what Jesus is selling. But even of those that are, there's a question of how many of those are really experiencing true repentance. And so they're having this, it's kind of like this wonderful moment, and, and they're, they're feeling like, oh, this is so great. We've been set free. You know, our salvation has come. It's all great. It's all good. But there's no true repentance. Therefore, there's no true living out Torah like it's in, in its real meaning, the mercy, justice, etc. And so they're actually defenseless. And, and when the enemy comes against them, because they're only rule keepers, as opposed to really living the image of God, they are susceptible. And Jesus is claiming that that is the fate of this current generation. Jesus is going to go, and other than the remnant, their later situation, their later status is going to be worse than their current status. So anyway, that's how I'm kind of viewing this parable, how it relates to the generations. So right at the end, he says, so also will it be with this evil generation. Their later state is going to be worse than the first because they're not really repenting. They're not really taking on Torah properly. 
And now I just have to say, in some way, we might we might hear this and we might think that it contradicts the earlier story about the strong man. And and you know what we said was all of the strong man's armor, which was more than just defensive, is both offensive and defensive. It was all taken. And so it took away his ability to regain power. But here, this thing that's being cast out, it doesn't say anything about taking all of his power, right? So it's it's two different stories. So try not to confuse those together. I think that'll make it hard. It's just not in view here. The strong man seemingly retained some of his armor and returned in this case, if we want to say that this unclean spirit was a strong man. And that's because in this story, his armor wasn't taken from him. In the end, what's important is that in this story, we're focusing more on the state of the person or the generation, their commitment, their loyalty, their faith, their faithfulness, their ability to withstand the return of the strong man. So, I don't know cool parable to me i don't know if i made it better or worse for people but there you go yeah i mean i like your your insights and interpretation of it It, there's some things with how you brought this to the table that i didn't recognize or consider in previous readings and studies from it um i did want to bring up this is kind of a loose interpretation um and i can't remember all the specifics but i've also read that there's a potential that if we're connecting the previous section with the sign of Jonah, and then it potentially Jesus's meaning about the call to repentance for the nation of Israel, and then this section about the parable with the unclean spirit and the state of the the focal character before and after that he might be alluding to how the nation's status is going to be um, if they repent now versus what happens if they continue to fail to repent after he leaves you know the story yeah. uh, biblically and yeah some argue that he's talking about what the what the nation's state is going to be like after the destruction of the temple especially when he's in like verse 45 where he says that yeah. the the last state of the person is worse than the first that he's meaning like like this is getting real guys like if you don't repent like yes. you're <laughs> in the same way that Jonah was angry that Babylon like overtook the nation and like exiled them it's going to happen again you know this yeah. time with the Romans and it's, it's potentially going to be even worse so um that that really resonated with me when I heard that for the first time that he's um there's definitely eternal things going on and uh philosophical with like our walks and what repentance looks like in our lives, but he's also being very practical and um, like rational in the current time with the audience to say like, this is going to have effects that you're going to tangibly see uh, potentially in your own lifetime if things don't change. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because I, I totally agree. I not sure how much it came out in what I said, but it, what was going on in between my ears <laughs> was totally that that the image that I was looking at was about look uh the temple destruction is coming and you guys are going to be in a mess so mm-hmm. yeah I'm glad you said it that's really good anything else no I, this is a good good chunk of text to go through I enjoyed it 
Yeah, yeah, it's uh, somehow very strange. We're slightly under our one hour mark, and I'm feeling pretty good about that. <laughs> We're making up for last week being like three hours long. <laughs> yeah. So, you know what? I think we should not blow it. Let's get out of here. Okie dokie. Thanks for listening to the Okie Dokie Most podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe. Leave us a rating and a review on your podcasting app to let us know how this content is impacting your life. Find out more information about us and our podcast at www.okidokimos.com. Feel free to send us any questions or comments you may have at our email address, okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.